Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by awesome Patreon backers like the capable Craig, the esteemed Erica Bond Barbagaris, and the great Greg Gordon. Today, we have myself, Ange, along with Matt and Chris, and we are going to talk about hex crawls, the good, the bad, and how we've used them in and their ideas in our games. Before we dive into that main topic, though, we're going to ask our get-to-know-a-gnome question. When was a time your knowledge of a real-life place helped you in a game? Chris, I'm going to start with you. Can I ask a question real quick? Sure. If your name was Erica Bomb Barbagris and you were in a fantasy world, what would you? What, what would be your role in that fantasy world? Because that's a great name. Like, shouldn't you just take that name and use it as a character somewhere? I've got to say, the number of years I've been reading Erica Bond Barbagris's name as part of our Patreon shoutouts, I've always pictured a noble barbarian. Yeah, that sounds about right. What, what do you think, Matt? Uh, I was thinking a wizard, but uh, I can see barbarian. Yeah, I like the noble barbarian, like like King Conan sitting on yeah. the throne. Yeah. All right. So a time that I, my knowledge of a real life place helped me in a game. So I've run a couple of games of the Dresden Files, one of old Dresden Files and one of Dresden Files Accelerated in Buffalo, which is where I live. And it's been very fun and useful for me to describe places from my memory and also like go to places then and then use those descriptions from places that I've been like actually inside of and whatnot, uh, and then put my magical spin on them. So like, for instance, we have a, it's called the Central Terminal. It used to be a pretty big hub for trains in Buffalo, but it fell out of use at some point in the past, I, mean, I could tell you the history of it, but I'm not going to. But it looks like a <laughs> it looks like a wizard's tower. It's like a 30 story wizard's tower. It looks pretty cool. the The closest building I can in pop culture that I could relate it to is it looks a little bit like that building from Ghostbusters. <laughs> That's cool. So there you go. What about you, Matt? Some of you may know that by day I am a literal bean counter. I work for the USDA and I do statistics. So. <laughs> A little while ago, I wrote a series of articles on fantasy crops and fantasy livestock that I and everyone else, because I publish them, can, can use in their games. <laughs> that, that is actually fascinating because my, uh, my campaign setting is got a bunch of like elemental reagent type stuff in it, and they use that to keep their crops and their, their livestock and stuff alive. So I wonder how that would affect your projections. I'll have to go read that article and see how I feel about it. <laughs> So I work for a mapping company, sort of. We capture aerial imagery of most of the country and, you know, provide it as a tool for various organizations around the country. And as a result, I get to see a lot of the country and the way it looks. I can tell you that, that Florida is the only state in the country where pink is a common house color. You know, it is like it is not unheard of to find a random house in Florida that is painted pink. I've been known to be able to pick out neighborhoods, figure out where a neighborhood is based on the way it's laid out. But one time I was playing in a modern set superhero game where the characters all randomly got teleported someplace. And it was obviously very different from where we had been. And... It was in a wooded area, so I started asking the GM very specific questions 
on the landscape and the trees and all this. And he was very confused at why I wanted to know this information. And I finally just got frustrated with him. And I'm like, look, there is a really big difference between the swampy forests of Louisiana and the Pacific Northwest rainforests of pine trees. It's like, you can get a feel for where you are in the country based on the way the forest looks. And he was just kind of like, very irritated that I brought that up and finally confessed that we were in the Pacific Northwest because the Pacific Northwest has a very distinct look to it. Were you playing yourself, Ange? Because otherwise, bad, bad player. <laughs> no, it wasn't a bad player. It wasn't a bad player. I was I, The character I was playing was somebody who pays attention to these types of things. Let's just put it this way. The character was a teleporter herself. She just didn't have that type of distance. Oh. So... I, I gotta, I gotta ask Matt though. Matt, do you think, do you think Ange is actually like secretly a spy? Hmm. Just like all these aerial shots. Maybe. I know what your backyard looks like. That's see, that's creepy. It's throwing it out there. And I can tell you that that I enviously look at pools, <laughs> and it is very, very rare to find anyone actually using said pools. Now, admittedly, we fly pretty much during business hours because we're flying through you know, the brightest time of the day. But still, I see so many gorgeous pools and nobody ever enjoying them. That's kind of funny. <laughs> so moving on into our main topic. Back in late January, I posted an article called My First Hex Crawl, where I talked about how I was using the concept of the hex crawl in my Depths of Zendrick D&D campaign. And now that we're a couple of months into the campaign and using it in that way, we thought it would be an interesting topic to bring up to a handful of gnomes. So Matt, I'm going to have you ask our questions here because you are the uh, resident expert on hex, hex crawls. I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh, I, I'm actually interested in some of the nitty gritty aspects before we get into the deeper aspects that I'm sure you guys are going to want to discuss. So first, hexes or grids? You know, on the Overland map, it is definitely, at least for the Zendrick campaign, it has been X's. But in the battle mat, you know, we're playing on a VTT. It's, it's grid. Uh, I don't actually use hexes for my Overland stuff at all, unless I'm playing a game that's specifically for that. So, I mean, the maps are just like, let's redline it or like points of interest type stuff. And my battle mats are all grids. So, like, hexes are a very specific thing for me. It has to be a specific gameplay. All right. What about you? So... I'm a big fan of grids, which puts me in the minority. I wrote an article not too long ago called Wait, Why Exactly Do We Use Hex Maps? where I go and complain a lot about hex maps. And so when, when I saw Ange talking about her first hex crawl, I'm there like, you must use grids. And uh, she informed me it was too late. So next, what is everybody's favorite hex size? Because clearly everybody's got a favorite hex size. You know, this is not something I even thought of until I started working on setting up the exploration phase of this campaign. The only other time I've played a hex crawl style game was when we did Pathfinder Kingmaker. Mm -hmm. And so I looked to that to kind of gauge how big my hexes should be. And I believe in the end, we decided my hexes were 12 miles across. Because I figured that 12 miles is a reasonable amount of time for them to travel, you know, and still get a feel of, for the lay of the land in that hex and get to the other side, you know, in one day type of thing. Good choice. I like it. I'm like a 15 mile person too. 
Uh, my cur- The thing that I'm currently doing right now, my hexes are 13 miles. Why 13? I did some research and that seemed like the right size for somebody to hike. If I was going to split it up over the course of an early part of the day and a late part of the day, 13 mm-hmm. was about the right amount of time from what I read for hiking across not easy terrain. It's probably about the same information I got that made me settle on 12, splitting the difference there. Yeah. What about you, Matt? I'm a six mile guy. There's an excellent article on the Hydra's Grotto in praise of the six mile hex. And it lays out, you know, extensively why you should use a six mile hex. And so who am I to question someone on the internet? So (laughs) that's what I use whenever I drag out hexes. I am surprised by that because you're the, you're, you're the, the self identified bean counter and I know it's for the USDA, but I feel like you would have done the research to be like, all right, if this is the math of this and like, da, 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 da. Also, hexes are weird, right? Because you, if it's like 13 miles across, but who actually actually just walks across a hex, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can go to any point of it. <laughs> There's a school of thought about, you know, hex crawling where it's not really the time to walk across the hex. It's the time to, you know, slash through the undergrowth and check around for points of interest and things like that, which actually brings me to the next question I wanted to ask, which is, what is the population density of points of interest that you like? This is something I've been learning as I go, because I wanted to have something interesting in each hex. Mm-hmm. And I realized that it's really easy to you know, have too much density of stuff in where they're exploring. So I've been trying to feel this out as I go. And I've been trying to do like something of interest in a hex, but maybe not something that's going to eat a lot of their time or role play or all of that. Like a meadow of flowers that put you to sleep and then consume you. You know, like, oh, that's interesting. We deal with that. We have this trap type thing we have to deal with and then we get past it. And then maybe the next hex over is where they find the mine that been, has been overrun by mushrooms where they have to rescue some miners. Simple thing in one hex, complicated thing in another hex. I'm still figuring this out. And as I told Matt when we discussed this topic, I'm probably not doing a true hex crawl. It's just helping me a little bit with the way this game has been running. Personally, I like when there's something, something in every hex. Now, it doesn't have to be like, a big encounter or anything like that. But when you explore a new hex, I prefer there to be something there. It could be a little thing. Yeah. It could be just like, here's this weird men here from an ancient empire that you found with a couple of runes scrawled on it. But that is the kind of engagement that I want with a with a hex crawl like that. Now, the thing that I'm doing right now that uses a hex map, it's not exactly your traditional hex crawl because there's like a war going on. So there's like, it's the hex map is actually for fog of war purposes because there's like a lot of forest in the area and in lakes and in like large gorges that people have to like move troops around. And I'm talking like thousands of troops. And then a smaller unit, the prize of the player carries, they're trying to like operate behind enemy lines. That's why my hexes are 13 miles because it's not about exploration necessarily. It's more about moving around and gathering information. That makes sense. What do you find works best for you, Matt? So I, I agree with the both of you. I think it's, it's very satisfying to have something in every hex and it doesn't have to be a dungeon in every hex. It can be a landmark or, you know, a a point of interest that's, you know, something that they'll interact with and then move on. 
the first time I ran a hex crawl, I had an awful lot of empty hexes. And luckily, all my <laughs> players were very new players. So walking into a hex and finding a forest there was interesting gameplay for them. For a more experienced group, I don't think it would have worked. There would have been a lot of navel gazing. So, so we had a series of articles a while ago. Troy started it with losing oneself in the wilderness. And we discussed the emergent storytelling style of hex crawls, where, you know, it's more of a reactive, you know, growing kind of story versus a traditional storytelling aspect. And, you know, are you using any of this emergent storytelling in your game or do you have a more traditional story already plotted out? I wanted to use more emergent storytelling, but I have found that it's been a little more, um, you know, like they get to a point and then they find out information at that point about stuff in the area, which then makes them decide to go into a certain area. So I feel like they get to the Dwarven Mine, talk to those folks, hear about a place that might, is of interest to what they're looking for. They head in that direction, at which point they find the Tortle Village, which is having an issue with undead, and they help the Tortle Village. From the Tortle Village and the gnome, and the dwarves, they had heard about people going missing in another area, so that's where they kind of went. And then from there, they ran into some drow, which... After they cleared out the, the problem that was making people disappear, they end up hearing about another location of interest that they go to. So it hasn't necessarily been just pure exploration on their part. They've been kind of, they get hints at stuff that's out there when they get to a certain area and interact with the people that are in that area, which has kind of meant, even though I'm I'm trying to run it as a hex crawl, it still comes across to me as the GM, like, okay, like, I know they're going here next, so this is what I have to have prepped and ready to go. So it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. That's an interesting distinction because, you know, there are kind of two schools of thought on hex crawls where one is you have to prep the whole monster thing ahead of time, and it's this huge work dump, and then you have endless hours of play, assuming you're players buy in and, you know, people actually want to play in this thing versus the give me an idea where we're going next and I'll just keep up ahead of you style of, of GMing. And so, you know, that's an interesting, you know, saying that you're doing, I'm just trying to keep ahead of you GMing doesn't make it not a hex crawl. I will say like, I did not fully prep out the map, but I did have noted in this hex is going to be this, in this hex is going to be this, in this hex is going to be this. And I had different ideas for stuff they were going to run into, but I didn't necessarily fully prep it until I knew they were headed there. Because I don't, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, but I, I have a pretty busy life. I don't necessarily have time to create an entire fully prepped, ready-to-go hex crawl. Okay, so this particular thing that we're talking about is fascinating to me, especially because I think that the hex crawl, the hex map, is one of the best tools that we have for emergent storytelling as far as games that, that play that way go. We're talking like West March's campaigns or those old, like we're landing on the Isle of Dread and we'll explore the hex map of the Isle of Dread or whatever you want to talk about. It's all about intent as far as Ange's talking about. I got, I got a couple of things to say about this. If you only have one path for them to follow, like they get a clue and that's the only way to go, 
then it's less emergent because you're dropping clues in front of them. But it, and I'm not, this is not a criticism of you. I'm just talking in general. Mm-hmm. But if you have like two or three different rumors or clues that they can get that can put them in different directions, then they're making choices. So that's way more emergent. Now, you could have a, a situation in the area of the hex map that you have going on that is moving regardless of what the players do. Like that is, that is a completely different thing outside of the emergent storytelling. It's just a threat that's growing as they're exploring around. Now, either they know about it or they find out about it as it's going. So that's, that's a style of emergent storytelling play. Now, you don't even have to have that, right? Say you have 100 hexes. You have 10 points of interest on your map that you have defined, right? Like, okay, we got these 10 spots. They're like major areas. I think this is how Forbidden Lands actually works. I've, I've never played Forbidden Lands. I'm going to do that podcaster thing that you're not supposed to do, which is talk about a game that you've never played. <laughs> hey, I mean, I looked at Forbidden Lands and some of their rules for exploration to define how I was going to handle this for my group. Yeah, man, Phil and, Phil and Bob play this game all the time. Those are also gnomes. Phil and Bob edits everything. Phil's another one of the gnomes. You can have the rest of that stuff just be random encounter charts for types of terrain. And like we said before, they can just be little things. They don't have to be encounters every time. And then the travel is the play also. One of the best things I've heard about for Bin Lands and from a lot of those old school D&D games is like, we're going to travel to this place. We're going to do a thing, but then we have to get back. And that's dangerous. Like we have to plan our resources to get to place X and then come back from place X to a place of safety, mm-hmm. which to me is one of the interesting things about hex crawls. And Forbidden Lands makes it easier to traverse hexes that you've already been in. I think I remember some some of those older D&D, like OD&D games, there, there's hacks and stuff that make it easier to get back to a place once you've gone there, as long as you're traveling known roads, because it's easier to move them. Yeah. So like, that, that's a fun emergent storytelling experience because you're revealing the map as you wander around. Uh, I don't know, Matt, what do you think about that? No, I, I think you're right on. And uh, back when I ran my hex crawl many years ago and you know had these new players, I had a plotted out storyline that I was going to run them through. And what emerged was that they completely forgot that that plot existed. <laughs> And just dropped it like a hot potato session one and just enjoyed wandering around, getting into, you know, random encounters and exploring hexes and just the, the beauty of your random hex crawl. And, uh, you know, again, they were new players, so perhaps that style of play wouldn't be for everyone, but, uh, they certainly got a kick out of meeting some gnolls for the first time. (laughs) That is funny. And that does little talk a little bit about style of play and experience of the players. Because I know one of the issues I have dealt with in this campaign and the exploration phase is I have very experienced players who are highly competent and, you know, very tactically sound, but they can make a mountain out of a molehill. You know, you throw one odd thing one offhand comment to them about a thing and like all of a sudden that becomes a major focus of their attention and i'm just like i didn't really mean for that to be anything important and now i'm wondering if i need to completely retool this campaign to work that into things or just tell them to shut up and move on no that's the emergent gameplay (laughs) your Mm -hmm. your random thing that you mentioned offhand is now the, the driving force of the campaign. You got to run with it. <laughs> oh, and players will, they will make connections that you never thought of. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most fun things about playing role-playing games. 
it can be exhausting as a GM, but it is fun. And it sometimes can, you know, it's okay to set aside your plans and your plots if what the players are fixating on is just as interesting or more interesting. Oh man, the, the connection though is to how to like, okay, I have plans and plots. How do I connect those to the things that they're actually yeah. interested in? Like that's the fun for me. That can work. That can work. But sometimes you just got to be like, you know what? This plan I had, it's like, let's set it aside and just deal with what they've got in front of them right now. Um, absolutely. You could do that too. I mean, there's no, it's the thing about this hobby. There's no one right way. Like you just do what you want. Like that's <laughs> half the, half the thing. It's all about, is everybody getting the experience that they want at the table? Because exactly. if you're not having fun doing that thing as the game master, like why am I setting aside my ideas that I, that that's the reason that I am playing the game. You don't have to, like you just figure out a way to connect them to the things that, that the players care about. But that's, that's how I feel about game mastering. I mean, that's good game mastering advice anyway. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you get into the quantum ogre question. If you're connecting your plot threads to the plot threads they're following, no matter what they do, do they really have agency or do they just feel like they have agency? And is that a meaningful distinction? I get a little mad at the people who like insist that the quantum ogre is a bad thing because ultimately I'm here as a GM to provide a fun, engaging experience for my players. And it is not a fun, engaging experience to wander through an area and have absolutely nothing happen. If the thing I have prepped is that encounter with an ogre, let me throw it in front of the players so they have something to engage with. And I understand that there is a problem of like the GM force feeding their plot down the players' throats, but that's usually not what people bitching about the quantum ogre are bitching about, if that makes sense. I'm not anti-plot guy. It's not about plot. I, I always think that we use plot, like it's it's a word that people use. I like I mean, I get it, but it's about situation. So it's about how you connect it to the situation. So if I prepped an ogre encounter for the day and the players went somewhere else then I don't have to have my ogre show up in front of them. I can just have my ogre show up in the town that they came from and start wrecking it because they didn't deal with it. Because there's consequences and repercussions to actions. That's a, that's a very different take on how to move along a, a story because the players didn't go do a thing, right? Because that shows that the world's alive then too. And a hex crawl probably should be alive. I mean, if you can have like a few things that are just moving around on your hex map... That's probably a much more interesting and engaging experience because you're like, you start hearing rumors about why is that village that we just went to now decimated and everybody dead? We, we had, I mean, they had a rumor that there was something weird out to the West, but they went East. That's fine. When they come back from the East, the village is gone. Like it's just a smoldering ruin. Now that to me is interesting. That is interesting, but I, I have also heard of GMs taking that too far. Of course they could take it too far. Or people advocating for taking it too far. <laughs> oh man, it's I like, can't I can't counter bad game masters. Yeah, and I understand that. I just I caught I, I sometimes caution like don't fridge your village. I'm not saying that's the home base village either, it's just the one that they ran across, right? Like right. they showed up here, they met some people, maybe it's even just a farmstead. And then they come back and oh, instead of it being destroyed, like here, I'll give a better example then. They come back, oh look, somebody ran off with the farmer. Here's another here's another example on the other side of the, the spectrum. It's the we're visiting a village and it's everything's fine and we're talking to the people and we're hearing some rumors and we're like, okay. Like and one of the rumors was there's orcs over that way or something along that line. Mm -hmm. But the GM didn't emphasize it enough. 
So when the next morning we're all getting ready to get back on our horses and head off to someplace else, the GM was like, are you really going to just leave these people to be slaughtered by orcs? And we're like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> like he was fully intending to emphasize it to the point that like, oh, this village is in danger, so they might need some protecting. But we didn't get that from any of the role play the previous night. That's a completely different topic, though, right? That's like I made a mistake as a game master because I didn't emphasize a thing well enough. It is it is another topic, but if you have a dangerous thing that is going to threaten some NPCs that your PCs are going to be upset about getting hurt, make sure they understand that that is actually a threat. Or, you know, like, do a sec, you know, take a second and, like, reconsider. Did I, did I give this information to them in a way that makes sense? Because sometimes, sometimes there is that disconnect. You know, if you are going to have a world in which there is potential danger coming at these PCs that the players could mitigate, make sure they have all the information to know which direction they can go. A hundred percent. Absolutely. You should just do that stuff. I agree. And if there's a miscommunication, clarify. <laughs> yeah. We've probably wandered away from the hex though, Matt. I was talking about the quantum ogre things that came up, right? Like there's a, there's ways to deal with that that are not, let me put it in the way of the players, like, which you can do. I think that's fine. If we had Bob here, I would tell him to pin the topic. Yeah. Like the, the quantum ogre thing, you can, that's one way to handle the problem. Another way is make it an ongoing threat that arrives pretty immediately or make it a threat that grows over time. Those are like three techniques that you can utilize to fix that problem, which Ange said one of them. She described two of them actually. So, <laughs> so getting back to the hex crawls, our next question is what type of gameplay and experience is had through hex crawls? And I know we've kind of already talked about some of this, but explicitly, this is all about exploration. It's all about resource management for the most part, these hex crawls, because you have to like plan how much food and stuff you have and light to get to a place, to explore a place and to get back from a place. It's very old school. I like that a lot, actually, about old school gaming. Um, it's about inventory management. These are the things that happen to me in hex crawls. If you're not doing these things, I think you might be missing out on part of the experience. I mean, you can leave some of that stuff out, but I think it's then missed out on. And also how a place, and this is a little bit deeper, evolves as you explore it, find things out, and start helping connect an area. No, I agree with that. In playing Kingmaker and then running this, it's definitely, a, it's, it's seeing what's over the hill. You know, it's that exploration that is really kind of enjoyable. And I, I say this as somebody who just, I, I like story, I like narrative, um, and sometimes in some hex crawls I've seen, it's like, it's just like, okay, we're just going to the next hex and okay, there's some story, but it's not as engaging and we either engage with it or we don't and so on and so forth. So when in these hex crawls, I like making sure that there's character and interesting stuff and all of that for the players to engage with or for me as a player to engage with. Well, we, we should talk about that for a second. I think it's an important thing to, to discuss is how to get the best narrative out of this style of play, which is, where's the narrative at? The narrative is at the characters and their interactions, mm -hmm. I think. The narrative is about the area and the story that the area is telling. Like, as you go from hex to hex, what is the theme of this area that you are exploring? How does it all culminate into something that is cohesive? I think one of the important things to know is why. Mm -hmm. Why are we here exploring? Yeah. For my characters in the Zendrick game, 
they were trying to find a particular location that would be good for some settlers and also explore because they're there to do that Indiana Jones stuff. <laughs> you know, they want to explore. They want to find relics. They want to find the cool stuff. You know, so that's the re in Kingmaker, it was like we are there to explore and settle this land. And, you know, we need to know what is in the land before we can figure out where and what we can settle. And they're two very different tones and feels and themes of game. Like Zendrix yeah. is giants and ruins and weird drow tribes that deal with like animals and bone armor and things like that. And like you said, the Indiana Jones, let's go into these trap laden, terrible places. Those are your like your your points of interest for the most part, yeah. your big points of interest. And then Kingmaker is all about like, there are people out here because this is the Wilderlands and that means this is probably a place where there's a bunch of people that don't want to be found. Yep. Uh, there's bandits, there's people hiding out, there's dangerous forests, there's locations of terrible monsters and, and whatnot just waiting in the wings because this is where they hang out and, and hunt. It's different, different tone, different feel, and it tells a different story. What are your experiences with, with the type of gameplay, Matt? Uh, I think you guys hit the nails on the head. I mean, it's all about exploration and seeing what's over the hill and sometimes just having those random encounters and seeing what is the local flora and fauna, etc. No, I think you guys covered it. What are the primary tools for a successful hex crawl and how are they used? So I think a lot of it is, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you're, you're taking inventory of your resources, etc. And I think a lot of it boils down to a successful procedure for exploration. I mean, you can just explore without a procedure, but it's much easier to track those resources to keep track of time, to keep track of season, etc. If you have a strict actual, you know, hex crawling procedure, you have this many watches and each watch is this many hours. And these are the actions you can perform while you're on your watch. Very similar to, you know, almost a combat situation where you have, the, this is your round and this is the actions you can perform in your round only in hex crawl scale instead of combat scale. That's kind of what I set up for um, the Zendrick game. Um, there's the exploration phase where they have somebody who's navigating. They have multiple people. They have two people who are doing what we call spotting, which is looking for interesting things to check out. And then two people who are in watch, which is like looking out for danger as they go. And then we have morale. That's the person who's just keeping everybody's spirits up. And so this gives everyone a chance to do something during the exploration phase. And then the same thing with the overnight phase of, you know, somebody to set up camp, somebody to do the cooking, people to do hunting or foraging, and then the watches for the overnight. And it's, it's worked out pretty well. It helps me as the GM to have them in those roles, to have them make the, the die roll to figure out how well they do or what they find, and that type of thing. And that's been, that's been really helpful for me. You know, I want to say it's important to have more roles than, it, than you have players, too, because that leads to the interesting choice of what do we focus on and what do we do? You know, do we have mm -hmm. two spotters so we can find more interesting stuff, or do we have two people on watch so that we get surprised less often? You know, that kind of <laughs> choice and consequence 
I, I will throw in one note. I did tell them that if they have more than one person on morale, their progress is slowed because they're basically the party train at that point. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I like that. That's great. That's a great rule. That's it's fun. That's a good time. Chris, I agree with everything you both just said. Going to some, I guess, primary other very more basic tools like you need a hex map. I think it's useful to have a random encounter chart for different terrains or areas. I don't know that you necessarily need that, but it's a useful tool. And that way, you don't have to fill in everything. You can just roll, which is often helpful. And you can have times where it's like nothing happens in a hex if you want to. I mean, I don't prefer that, but I mean, you can have that too. It's like give them a breather every once in a while. Like, oh, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? The other thing that you can have, I think you need to have a solid encumbrance and fatigue system that kind of go together along with like weather. I think weather is an important thing that doesn't get mm. talked about enough in hex crawls because if it's just sunny all the time, then I mean, it, it no place is sunny all the time unless it is, unless you're in San Diego. <laughs> Can I share a note on what I've done as far as a map goes? Yeah. There is a site out there called Kanka.io, which lets you do campaign management and share information with your players. And what I have set up is I have set up a version of the map which is the player's map where they can make notations and put pins in it for things they have experienced. And then I have the GM map. That's cool. Where I basically have notes on what is in different hexes and what they have what they have gotten to and what they haven't gotten to. That's a useful tool. I like that. That has been a lot of a lot of fun. I actually made the switch to Kanka.io because I was originally looking at World Anvil, but World Anvil it's really cool. There's some cool stuff there, but a lot of it is behind a paywall. Uh, with World Anvil, I did not like that if I were using materials that I had just randomly found on the internet and did not own the copyright of, World Anvil made that information completely available to anyone who just randomly Google searched unless I wanted to pay them a fee to put that all behind a gate. And I'm like, I am totally fine with just randomly using for my personal private game whatever I find on the internet, mm -hmm. but I don't want to have that out there publicly because I don't own the rights to that stuff, and I don't feel it's fair to have that stuff publicly available, which is why I switched to Kanka.io, because that has a lot of similar tools, but all my stuff is completely only available to the people I give permissions to. That's a really neat tool. That's That's pretty cool. I guess those are all the tools that I could think of anyway, like aside from the procedure. And you can fit the things that I talked about inside of the procedure, like are you weighed down? Are you fatigued? What is the weather like? Mm -hmm. Has it changed your travel path in any way? Is there anything moving around on the hex that the players don't know about as a game master? Those tools right there can help create a pretty, pretty fun dynamic hex crawl, if you ask me. Yeah. So you mentioned wandering monster checks or encounter checks, I guess. And a neat system that I saw on the internet was that you have your encounter checks with a percent chance of being in lair. And so you can end up building areas into your hex crawl because the players came here, had a random encounter. It was in a lair and now you know there's a cave there and that's another point of interest in your hex crawl. I love that. And Ange, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with steel profusely. That is one of the strategies I have seen and, and fervently believe in for populating all of these goddamn hexes. <laughs> um, so, you know, steel profusely, 
And and I, I agree with you. I'm not sure I would want to steal profusely and then advertise that fact. Yeah, no, it's it's one thing to do it for your own private home game where it's just you and your players. It's another if it's publicly available because I definitely want to respect copyright of people that own stuff because the internet is already a dangerous wild west place when it comes to that type of stuff anyway. So I, I think our final question is, you know, both of you are actively running hex crawls right now, and we haven't really talked about how are they going? How is your hex crawl going, Ange? It's going fine. Um, it's we're actually about to wrap up uh the this chapter of the campaign. Um, I'm gonna run one more session. Um, and I'm not sure if they're gonna try and explore another hex or so, or just head back to where they were gonna meet up with some people. But I've got one more session, and I've learned a lot that is going to help me prep for when we pick the campaign back up in six months to a year. But I want I want some time as a player, so... It's gone well, and the players are enjoying themselves, which is really all that matters. Good. And Chris, how's yours going? Uh, so mine's not really a hex crawl as much as like a, a, a giant war. <laughs> so that's taking over the, that's taking the place over days. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. There's like battles and skirmishes and things like that, and armies running around and cities to be defended. It's, it's going pretty good. I, I mean, to go with the procedure thing that you're talking about, I have an, an early, a late, and a night phase. And I'm like, okay, group, you can do whatever you want within this to help like do whatever you need to do behind enemy lines and create subterfuge and gather things together and like sabotage camps and, and whatnot. But if you go more than two phases in a row, like if you try to go a third phase, you get a level of exhaustion because you're not sleeping. And this is hard, difficult work. That's how I've been running it. They're on like day 10 of this right now. They used a rope trick at one point in time to hide in an extra dimensional space to watch a 5,000 person force like walk underneath them. So they got pretty good information out of that. Uh, they've sabotaged a camp by sneaking into their food supply and destroying it pretty much, like causing it to be poisoned, which slowed down a like half of this. There's two, two 5,000 person forces running around. One of them's already at the, the city that they're, that they're trying to defend, but the, the city is defending itself too. They have lots of friends. But they've done a pretty good job of slowing this down. They've also managed to pick up the uh, a bunch of the halflings that are like Spartans that have been teleported all over this forest accidentally because of a trap that they fell into. So they have like a, a force of like 100 Spartans with them too, 100 Spartan halflings. So, you know, there's that. So it's fun. We're having a good time. They, they liked it. It took them about two hours to like get into what was going on. And then we've now played two sessions. We have probably one more session of this running around on this, this hex map before we're all done. That's pretty cool. Do you have any going right now, Matt? Or are you uh, in between your hex crawls? I'm in between hex crawls. They're one of those things that every time I take a look at that elephant, I'm not sure I want to take the bite yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. I will tell you folks what we're getting ready to potentially do uh, in one of my, the, the game that I play with Phil and Bob and uh, Jerry from Misdirected Mark is uh, we might play Twilight 2000, which Ooh. there's the new Twilight 2000, which uses the Forbidden Lands hex crawl system. That is interesting. So like post-World War III hex crawly type stuff or World War Three hex crawly type stuff. I'm kind of interested in playing that game because of that. We will have to keep an ear out for that if you guys get to it. I think we've we've covered the hex crawl. We've covered this map. So we are going to start heading out of here. This show is funded by the Gnomes 2 Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link of the Gnomes 2 website to the Gnomes 2 Patreon. This ad is brought to you by GMPS, the game map positioning system. Playing in a game where the world is a complex and convoluted map, you can count on our brand new GMPS to help your party navigate through the most dangerous wilds of the game. 
If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Pandas Talking Games. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Wednesday, answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing tabletop RPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. If you bring them bamboo, they'll be extra happy. <laughs> you can find all of us at gnomestew.com, gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Is there anything else you folks would like to give a shout out to today? I'd like to shout out a non-gaming podcast that I edit, help produce, and function as a third host on. It's called Coffee Flavored Horror. <laughs> it's where we take a horror movie and hit the good, the bad, the horrifying, and the horrifyingly cheesy about the film. We also do a recap of the film and talk about a bunch of interesting factoids surrounding it. Nice. My gaming shout out is to XP to level three. It's a YouTube channel that I enjoy with a number of funny skits and some decent GMing advice delivered via humor. It's a one person shop and I appreciate his skill. He's very good at what he does. Nice. Uh, Matt, do you have anything you want to give a shout out to? I do. So we talked about the fact that I'm a bean counter during the day. <laughs> and I just want to remind everybody that it's not too late to fill out your tw 2022 census of agriculture. Go to agcounts.usda.gov. <laughs> You know, and I'm just going to give a shout out to Kanka.io. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's been very useful for me as a campaign kind of management thing. I don't use it as much as I should, but the map has been super handy. So there you go. So what do you think? Did we stay out of the stew, Ange? We may have stayed out of the stew, but we're definitely lost in this hex crawl map. That's true. That's true. <laughs>